Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well and you're getting through the winter okay. This week's episode, I chat with Liz Andrew Brake, and Liz has spent a lot of her career working in child protection. So I know a lot of you will find some of the things Liz has to share really interesting. We do a bit of myth busting and we talk about some of the challenges in working in child protection, as well as some of the things that can be quite rewarding to see some of the growth and some of the support that you provide to vulnerable children and their families. Like always, I'm happy for you to get in touch. Reach out to me in the Facebook group or you can send me an email. You can link to me on the socials. It'd be great to hear about the kinds of things you're interested in, uh, what kinds of guests you'd like to see on the podcast. And I really enjoy hearing from you all. Here's my interview with Liz. Welcome to another episode of Inside Social Work. Today I'm chatting with Liz Andrew Brake. She's a social worker with a lot of experience in child protection, but I'll let her introduce herself a little bit more. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Could you give the listeners a bit of a background into your experience and who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, So obviously my name is Liz and if you can't tell already, I am a Kiwi. So I'm from New Zealand. Uh, So I qualified as a social worker in New Zealand and I went straight from my, uh, from getting qualified, I went straight into statutory child protection, which was definitely an interesting journey for me, um, especially because I came from quite a privileged background. (laughs) So I kind of just jumped straight into it. And um, yeah, so I worked in New Zealand for a few years and that was all statutory. Then I actually moved to the UK. So I worked in the UK for a few years as well. Um, Went back to New Zealand for a little while and then I found myself in Australia about eight years ago. So um, yeah, that's, um, and and in Australia, I've worked for non-government organisations in child protection um, and I've done a range of things. So I was a team leader, I um, was then a manager for a child protection program and then and for the last few years, I've been a practice lead for child protection um, for another non-government organisation. And also at the beginning of the year, I started up my own private practice. So I do this on the side as an external or professional supervisor, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, which has been really interesting. So kind of a broad range, but it's always been in child protection, which is quite interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a very difficult area of, of practice, that's for sure. Um, yes. And before we go into what are some of the, I guess, misconceptions, I just, I thought, you know, I've noticed even just working very briefly with, um, in private practice with some referrals from tra- uh, child protection, but I've noticed some significant change in the more trauma-informed model. Is that mm-hmm. something you feel that you've observed or you could speak to briefly? Yeah, I think that there has been. I think there's a lot more recognition of coming from a trauma-informed model. I think there's a lot more work to be done, though, in that space. Um, But I think that practitioners, caseworkers, social workers, you definitely have better knowledge of it and are trying to... um, 
bring that into their practice. I th- still think there's some bigger systemic things that kind of impede that, unfortunately. But I think that it will work from the ground up. So I think that as workers start using it in their practice, you know, it'll kind of feed up. Um, but yeah, systemically, there's still some issues there, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, it's kind of or not fitting, but when uh, what's happening in the media at the moment and we're looking mm-hmm. across uh, multiple um, Western countries, there's a lot of discussion that's come to light around systemic injustices, intergenerational trauma, intergenerational poverty that are so much bigger than probably what we have time for today. And I don't want to, to go there too deeply, <laughs> but it does make you reflect that there's so much more to work on and it's so big but it's not impossible yeah and I think systemic because unfortunately child protection as soon as you go knock on people's door that you come with all that history of all that systemic abuse and do you know what I mean so you, you're already kind of fighting an uphill battle in a way because you um even if you work for a non-government organisation, you're still coming with a lot of that power that was abused in the past and still, unfortunately, in some places gets, you know, does get abused um, at, you know, currently as well. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that was my first placement was in child protection. And I really felt that um, I was at the family courts and there was someone mm-hmm. kind of just yelling and screaming and saying, you know, you were all, all sorts of profanities taking children away. And I was horrified because you don't get into, this this field often I've I've yet to meet anybody with ill intentions it's it was to support people to help families to build skill to recognize opportunities for growth and development and to be stepping into that role and have that history and take on some of that was really difficult yeah yeah it really is and you I really didn't realize that when I as a you know fresh face fresh face new grad I don't think you realize you, you're there to do right by people, but what you don't realise is that when you work for a big organisation, particularly in the government, that you're coming with a lot of the baggage from that place, you know? And it's quite rightly, you know, that this that people feel that way. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the maybe common misperceptions that either you might have had coming into it or you just feel the general, you know, even just the industry itself or what are some of the things that you've noticed over your time in that space? Yeah, I think we kind of just touched on it. And I, um, you know, I think often when I talk to people that don't have anything to do with social work or child protection and they ask me what I do, I try to avoid that as much as possible. But, you know, <laughs> when, you, when people my, ask you. My supervisor uh, used to say she worked for Telstra. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. She yeah, would, she would, we would not, we weren't allowed. She's like, if we go out for a team dinner, do not say child protection, just say we work for Telstra. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it evokes some very interesting conversations that sometimes you just, yeah, it's too hard to say. Which is probably why she but, picked the telco. She's like, just think of the most boring thing you can say. No offense to anybody who works yeah. in telecommunications, but just because just, no one has anything to follow up with that. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, completely. But I, I think a lot of the general public kind of see, because, you know, you're working with abuse and neglect and sometimes it can, you know, it can be really severe um, you know, it's on a on a continuum of different types, but I think people often think that 
parents that abuse their abuse or neglect their children are kind of evil or really bad people and I think very quickly I learned that when you sit down you go and you know you get a report and you have to go and talk to someone about something that they've done which doesn't sit well with you you know they've done something that you don't agree with and you go and sit down and you talk with them and you realize that they're people and people do things because of their own histories and backgrounds um, and don't get me wrong there are some people that I've met that I you know that you think oh this is quite you know you this is very evil I guess if you want to for want of a better word but I think people do things because they've learned it because of their own trauma because of their family and I think for me um, yeah you, everyone's got their own stories if you know what I mean you know um, and ultimately people love their children and they want to do right by their children. So, you know, just even sometimes you come across say maybe physical abuse and people will tell you, well, I don't want my child to, you know, I want them to be well behaved. I want them to grow up to be a good member of society. So they're doing that because they think that they're helping them. So there's a lot of kind of education, um, and unpacking that kind of trauma or family background, because you think about with parenting, often people, um, they parent the way that they were parented. And I don't have kids, but I often say things and I think, oh my goodness, that sounds so much like my mum. <laughs> you know, these things kind of come out. And so if you've had a, um, you know, if you've had a challenging upbringing yourself, you're often going to repeat the same patterns that you did. And it's very hard to break that. Those are quite innate. And so you really have to work um, at that to break those kind of cycles. So I think for me, that's a big, a big um, misconception out there. Um, yeah. And and I think it's interesting that you say it's not just, I mean, I, I don't think it's just people looking out into it that think that those, those are kind of, you know, they're bad people, they're cruel, but often having worked with some of those families, they feel that there's that self stigma as well. Mm-hmm. So they, they might have best intentions, but maybe there's a skill deficit or a gap in their knowledge or another, um, mental illness or ill health or something else getting in the way that they actually don't want to be acting like that either. And then they feel that internalized, that shame, that guilt, and they start to feel like, well, I am, I must be that bad person. I must be that cruel person. And that can also prevent them getting the support that they need. Yeah, definitely. And I think that goes back to what we've talked about before in terms of that power and that stigma, you know, that people don't want to Um, get into the system or you know and so it might prevent them from actually seeking help even though they desperately want it yeah so what are some of the challenges that you've maybe found personally working in that system um what are some challenges I think for me um probably the biggest challenge is um, that's been for me working in Australia. Um, I found that working between New Zealand and um, between New Zealand and the UK quite similar, and it was a lot more of a culture shock professionally coming to Australia, which is really interesting. And um, I find I found that um, you know the types of issues that you're dealing with are, are fairly similar, except it's a different type of culture. But I think the system works very differently here. And I really struggled with that when I first came here. And I think that um, in New Zealand and the UK, everyone that works in child protection are social workers. And here um, you get kind of, you're called a caseworker. And I think that you kind of get a little bit disconnected from the social work 
field. And I definitely think I lost my way for a little while because you become a social, you become a caseworker and you kind of leave, yeah, you kind of lose a little bit of that social work essence. If you know what I, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, one of the episodes uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with um, Suzanne Darakis Sprague and we were talking about social workers maybe historically haven't been so good at advocating for a professional identity mm-hmm. um, and we're one of the few professions that seem to just take on these roles of case manager or case coordinator or something practitioner or whatever and it can really sometimes it can dilute um, that identity and knowing you know who I guess it I think it can I, I see what you're saying and I think it can contribute to that sort of sense of what what's different about social work what's unique about it what am I drawing on do my pe- mm-hmm. you know is it a multidisciplinary team are we working from that model is yeah. and that can just be a little bit muddy yeah definitely I and I 100% agree with that and I, it took me a little while to realize it and then when I kind of because I think as well and this is in lots of areas of social work but in child protection you're so time poor you're resource poor you know what I mean so you've just got your head out head down almost kind of surviving and so sometimes you know yeah before you know it and this happened to me do you know before you know it you're kind of immersed in this kind of casework um yeah, you, you've kind of lost your identity a bit. And I think that when I, and I've seen this with other people too, when you start to then get back into that social work identity and maybe, you know, there's a lot more advocacy and speak, you know, having that social work identity, that actually prevents burnout, I, I think. Um, yeah, so I think that that's a real challenge in the child protection system here. And I, you know, I feel quite strongly that I'm, yeah, that we kind of, need to advocate more for social workers particularly in that child protection field because it is very different as I said from New Zealand and the UK who you are social everyone's a social worker so you have that real strong identity. I think you're right with the preventing burnout in terms of if you I mean I imagine there's a lot of challenge day to day around you're doing your time poor like you said resources are stretched but you're also trying to change a bigger system so if you're working with other um, professionals that don't have maybe that advocacy or systemic lens, mm-hmm. you, you might be stuck between a rock and a hard place. So you're trying to hold the weight of that, of influencing change as the sole, well, what maybe one of few professionals or social workers in that space, if that kind of makes sense. So, cause it's yeah, not definitely. as ingrained into other, other areas, um, other qualifications as much. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's a real challenge for people also that don't have social workers as managers as well. And I know that there's lots of people out there, you know, people that work in hospitals, there's all different places where the same thing happens. But, um, you know, I think that particularly in child protection, vicarious trauma, burnout, compassion fatigue, all those things are such huge issues that if you don't have the right support, then... um, you know, that is going to lead you down a path of getting more severe vicarious trauma or, or, bur- or burning out. Um, and so you almost have to seek those out from other places if you're not getting it in your workplace. Are there any ways that you found that you were able to, to seek those out? Um, so I definitely have enjoyed um, getting on Facebook and Instagram. I think that there's quite a few people around to follow. Um, you know, that kind of give you that social work inspiration, particularly Instagram. I'm a bigger fan of Instagram <laughs> than Facebook, and there's quite a lot of people on there. But I think things like um, 
you know, having a professional supervisor or getting a mentor, you know, those kind of things are a big, um, yeah, that how people can seek out support in other ways or even advocating, you know, getting, what are you passionate about and getting out and, um, and yeah, being an activist or, you know, just getting back to some of those social work routes that usually are what people go and study, um, go and study social work in the first place. What do you think might be some of the barriers that stop people reaching out for those or creating those networks and support? I think maybe not knowing that they're there. Um, and I do just think that we get into in child protection, you get into survival mode a bit. And especially because our clients and our families that we work with are in that mode. And so you sometimes get caught up, you know, you kind of mirror, um, mirror, mirror that. And so I think that we, you know, it is really tiring. Um, and I think sometimes as well, you can lose a bit of hope and similar to what we kind of talked about before, cause there are some systemic issues and you need to, um, and sometimes the things that happen for you know, the changes that we might see are very small or we might actually not see them. We might think that we haven't had an impact, but then down the track, we don't actually see what, what our impact was. So, yeah. I think that's a really, that's a really hard one to balance because I've heard um, or I've had one supervisor kind of talk to one of their students about that imposter syndrome and feeling like what makes you sometimes feel you're so important that the wrong, you might say the wrong thing and it's going to derail them Yeah. yeah. on the flip side. That's partly true. But then on the flip side, you can also be that person who creates a bit of space or creates a bit of hope or plants the seed for lack of a better phrase and maybe multiple people doing that creates change. So you don't know maybe long-term what that yeah. person is going to draw on from their interactions with you yeah it's interesting because for my um private practice at my um my um logo is a dandelion seed for that very reason because i feel like we plant the seed and i um and i once had this this woman come in um to look at her file and i never worked with her um so she, it was before i worked she was working with a caseworker before i worked there and she came in to view her file and I sat with her while she was viewing it. And she said, oh, you know, my caseworker probably was so annoyed with me that um, I never, you know, because she was at the time she'd been in quite a severe domestic violence relationship and she never left the relationship while um, she was working with the caseworker. And she said, my caseworker was probably so frustrated with me. You know, I never... Um, you know, I never left the relationship and I, um, you know, so she, she just was reflecting on that. And, she, but she said, you know, it took me a few years after I finished working with the program, but I actually got up the courage to leave. And she said that, um, you know, the whole time when she was working with that worker, she was listening to them, you know, and she took everything on board, but she might not have done the things in that time, but she did them a few years later. And it just really stuck with me. And I thought, well, you know, that's so you just have no idea what the impact is that you have on people. And this work, the caseworker who was long gone will never know that either, you know. So I think that for me, that really gives me hope is that every interaction that you have with people, even if it's that you're giving them a good experience, if they've had a really crap time with the child protection system and you're giving them, you know, you're, you listen to them, you treat them with respect, that might mean that that person might go and 
be more willing to go and seek counseling or, you know what I mean? There's, I think that every little interaction you have is so important and you don't know the impact that you have on people. I really like that because I think that's, it's so important even just for that positive experience because it might increase help seeking behavior. Mm, yeah. And, and I think, and I work a lot with young people and that's sometimes what I try and do. Maybe they're not ready or for a range of reasons, you know, if I can just create a safe space and say, you know, if we're not the right fit or we don't click or yeah, I agree. This is also kind of sucky, you know, just prep them that you can find someone else. You know, you, there, there are people you can trust. There are people you can connect with and just keep hope that there will be the right fit or the right service or people will listen. Mm-hmm. Cause you can imagine what it would be like for something we're very scared or vulnerable whether it's a medical procedure or a dental procedure if you have a really bad experience and you've never done that before you might think all of those dentists or or doctor or whatever will be Mm. the same so you might not go again yeah yeah and I think you know there's and exactly what we talked about at the beginning there's that added pressure with that child protection because it comes with so much history so you might never have had an interaction with child protection but you've heard stories or do you know what I mean? It never, it's always sitting there or you always, you know, time and time again, I've had been, you know, talking to people in a home visit say, and they've got a friend there that's had an experience with child protection. Do you know what I mean? So that it's, yeah, it's a real, it's a real stigma and it's a real, there's a lot of history that comes from it. Mm, Absolutely. I was thinking about the idea that, um, I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy and Mm -hmm. the idea of living by your values. And even if your, your goals are bigger and you want to create big systemic change, if you value, you know, let's say compassion or kindness, you can do that every day in every interaction Mm -hmm. while you're still chipping away at those bigger things. Yeah. So is that, I mean, how do you support, and, and maybe it kind of jumps a little bit into a question later down, but, how do you support people in your supervisory role mm-hmm. to maybe get in touch with what they value and why they're doing that work to bring it into their interactions? Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's just really honing in on your why and almost going back right back to what made you want to become a social worker. You know what I mean? Really kind of unpacking what made you become a social worker because I think those things we, we forget um, and so, and, and just revisiting that. And even if we revisit it once a year or something, you know, just reminding ourselves about what, what made us get into the profession. And, um, yeah, it's a bit like theory, you know, you learn all this theory at uni. And I was just talking about this with someone the other day that you learn all this theory at, at uni and then you kind of put it to the side and say you're kind of five years into your career and you're you're filling out you're kind of um you're trying to get accreditation for your mental health social work or something you know you're trying to figure out what your what theories you use but you realize that you actually do use those all the time but actually thinking about it I think we need to be a bit more um reflective and really kind of think about how we use how we use them and I think it's the same with your why and your values as well can you remember your why? <laughs> oh, this is a good question. Um, <laughs> I probably went in, you know, wanting to change the world. I think, no, actually, I, no, I didn't. I really love working with children and I want to, um, I wanted to give children a voice. I wanted to listen to children. 
is re- really my why. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> so having been, it's probably been a while um, since you were on placement, but a lot mm-hmm. of our listeners are students on placement or early graduates. Mm-hmm. So you can think right back to that or through your experience in a, a sort of managerial supervisory role. What are some tips or, or tricks or tools that you might recommend to students on placement who maybe are in child protection or want to look mm. at that as a possible option? Yeah. Um, so I think definitely, I think supervision is key. Um, so make sure that you have a social work supervisor, which you would have to in placement anyway. But um, so I think that that's really important because child protection does raise a lot of challenging things for people um, in a multitude and it's sometimes it's not even the um, you know the abuse or neglect side of things it's, it's also the systemic things or the bureaucracy those kind of things um, so I definitely I mean that's a big thing for me is make sure you've got the right support and really think about your self-care and I know that self-care is a bit of a done word sometimes I'm like oh self-care it's a bit of a do you know what I mean sometimes it's a bit of a cliche but I think it's so important so make sure that whatever energy you're putting out that you're giving yourself that energy back um, and really think about a plan before you go in. How are you going to nurture your self-care? Um, and really think outside the square. You know, it doesn't have to be exercise. Well, it should be. But, you know, it doesn't just have to be exercise and eating well. You know, those are kind of the token ones. But really thinking about um, other aspects of self-care. What gives you energy? What's going to give you energy? Um, and I kind of like to think about self-care. You've got your long-term strategies, which you should always have, but then what are some of your kind of first aid or really quick self-care strategies that you can do in the moment when things are not going so well? Um, you know, like breathing exercises or there's so many little things that you might do in the moment. So I just really think that people should, um, that students should think about that before they go in. Yeah. What's your idea? And I don't know if social work is, it's not as common um, from what I hear in the social work field, but a lot of um, therapists and counsellors seem to also make sure that they have their own therapist or counsellor. And I think, and that's something I've always tried to do. um, And I think that's also really important. And I don't know why it's not as ingrained in social work, but trying to, I try to split what I, you know, in supervision, I, I do want to talk about what comes up for me and, and the impact something's had, but I want to keep the nitty gritty vicarious trauma, the self care, the any distress for my own personal counselling. Mm. What are your thoughts on on maybe having someone that you can trust that if you've got that long term relationship, if you do have a mini a crisis or a, an acute kind of something come up, you've already established that relationship with someone. Definitely. And I just think the more support that you have, the better. And the more that you invest in yourself, um, the better. So I, I, re- I really would advocate for that, particularly because people go into the field and they've got their, you've got, you, br- you bring with it your own history as well. Um, you know, so someone that you already have that rapport with and that you can go and talk about that is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because you also need to be mindful that sometimes some of those personal things that come up, you might not want to talk about with someone that manages you or is your place, you know, that is your fieldwork educator. Do you know what I mean? Your fieldwork, what are they called? Fieldwork. Yeah. Educator. Yeah. 
So, you know, some of those things that are a bit trickier to talk about might be really hard to talk about with those kind of people. So you need someone um, yeah, that's more, that understands you more on a personal level, I think, as well. But there's time, pla- there's place for both. Yeah. A lot of students, um, supervision and self-care, I think, comes out in every single interview um, on the <laughs> podcast. And some, and, and I, I hear a lot of students sort of say they don't know what good supervision looks like. Yeah, uh, and I find that, and and I find that I can empathise with that because in my role as an external supervisor for the field education placements, it's different to what ongoing external supervision would look like because we still have to meet certain, I guess, key components of the learning plan to you know for the to pass the placement. But what are some things that someone who's maybe never had supervision, especially in this space? might want to negotiate or like how would they maybe initiate a session with someone? Mm. Like what are some of your ideas around that? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting topic and something that I've been thinking quite keenly about lately because I've seen on a few Facebook groups as well that people kind of asking these very questions. (laughs) And I think for me, it's making sure that their values align with you it's almost a bit like a counselor too in the sense that sometimes you're not going to really know until you actually have a session with them so you don't have to be committed to one person forever do you know what I mean you might just go and have a few sessions with someone and then go and see someone else and that's okay so don't feel like you have to um yeah be committed (laughs) do you know you know that you have to see them forever um so I think your values um and, it, and really being clear about what you want from them. Um, so say you're really wanting to hone reflective practice, ask them about how they do that in their supervision sessions. Um, say you're really wanting to get, think about theory and practice, you know, so you set, you can set the parameters for it. Um, but it is, it is tricky and I can empathize as well. I think it took me quite a few years to figure out what that looked like for me personally. And I think everyone's journey is different, which makes it even more challenging to explain. <laughs> and I, I think, I think it can be hard to know what you want to get out of it. Cause if you're just starting out, true. Yeah. You, you don't know what you don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's, and that's, something maybe to avert as well is saying I'm actually not sure can you guide me because yeah that's part of the role as well is some supervisors are expecting you to guide them tell me what you want but if you don't know maybe you need to say I'm I don't know could you guide me and then we can have that conversation because there's so many different modalities of supervision there's so many different um trainings and qualifications so not everybody comes with the same skill set and then the same background so if you've got an OT who's a supervisor they might work different to a mental health social worker or to a psychologist or to a counsellor and they bring in different tools and frameworks into that as well oh and it's yeah there's so many people out there as well it's really hard it's really hard to navigate and I think sometimes just even having developing a relationship with someone and that kind of I often find that you know you develop a a relationship with the supervisor and the supervisee and then that kind of evolves from there around what kind of things that you might talk about because then you might talk about oh well, this this you know challenging thing came up in my workplace and then you're going to talk about that and then you realize okay well I actually want to focus more on that in the next session as well it kind of evolves um from there yeah I I also think um 
we don't, we, we underestimate the importance of peer supervision sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think I know, and I agree with you being able to tap in and tap out of various supervisors for different things, but there's also something very rich and valuable of having the same core group of people that get to know you over time that you feel you can be, it's safe to be vulnerable and sometimes hearing their experiences as peers especially if you're in a field where maybe you're one of the few social workers. I think like education is a big one as well, where you might be the only social worker in that school or in that space, Mm. having peers who are also maybe the sole worker. There's that sense of, Oh, I'm not the only one going crazy. Or I I thought I was the only one who saw it from this perspective. And that's a different sense of camaraderie maybe. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that peer supervision is a great tool to use. Um, And I think you can learn so much from other people. And I really value um, group supervision, which which has been something that's happened um, probably over the last five years or maybe a bit longer in the child protection field. So it's teams coming together and talking through cases and things. And there's so much value in sharing that. And I always learn, even if I was a team leader or a manager, I always learn so much from other people. And having a chance to be vulnerable um, as well and say you know, this person, I'm really struggling with this person. I really kind of, um, you know, they've got this mental health issue and it's really, you know, it's, it's really, I'm finding it really hard to manage. I think being vulnerable and having a space to do that is so powerful. And I think people don't know that if it, if it's not advertised, you can create it. So if you've got two, three, four friends, a colleague's peers that you think we kind of, we vibe well, we get along you can approach a supervisor and create a facilitated group session. So, you know, social workers maybe aren't super good at the branding and marketing side of things. So you, you might have to ask <laughs> around and be like, who can you recommend or who do you go to? And you find the right people. Cause if you Google it, some people don't even have websites or business cards. It's just word yeah. of mouth. So maybe, you know, reach out to someone yeah. and say, there's four of us. Can we split, you know, what would it cost to have a 90 minute group supervision electronically in person? What are the options? And then you can set that up yourselves. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I found really um, great value since I've um, gone into private practice is just kind of reaching out to other people in private practice and just having a one-on-one with them and just not even, and just having a debrief or talking about what we've been doing has been really valuable. I love that. You know, and then, you know, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and we got really into you know, child protection and social work and what needs to happen, you know, it kind of went to this real kind of activism place. And it was, um, I left, you know, and it was just a half an hour chat, but I finished feeling kind of, uh, you know, I talk a lot about energy, you know, it really energized me, you know what I mean? I thought, yeah, this is, you know, it kind of takes you back to what, again, what made you want to be a social worker in the first place and what do you value about social work? Mm. So if we, just to kind of, wrap up uh you know we're towards the end of the interview but if there's one piece of advice that you could impart on the audience either something you wish you knew or just you know we've talked about burnout supervision feeling connected um self-care you know if you kind of had one little kind of piece of advice what would it be um i mean there's so many (laughs) i know but (laughs) something that i haven't talked about i think just remembering people kind of say the word child working in child protection and you straight away go to working for statutory and being a caseworker and doing that and i think really remember because i you know i'm really advocate of people getting into this profession you know into child protection like 
you know, give it a go, do it. But there's so many different ways that you can take your career just within child protection. And look at me, you know, I've done so many different things. So don't feel that you have to once... I mean, I would recommend people going and having a go at working as a caseworker for a little while, but you don't have to stay there forever. There's so many other places you can do. Like at the moment, I'm a practice lead, and that's really interesting when you write policy and procedure and things. Um, yeah, you can. there's so many different things that you can do. You can work for an NGO. You can work for a big NGO or a small NGO. You know, it doesn't just have to be statutory. So don't don't limit yourself into thinking that if I work in child protection, this is what it's going to mean because it is so broad yeah I think that's a really good tip and I, I would probably add to that is in those sorts of organizations often there's a lot of professional development and opportunities oh, yeah. for learning that can then maybe not solidify your path but give you different options than just what you originally thought the role might look like so you could do trauma and become sort of work in residential care or in a specialist mm -hmm. role or with families or mediation or exactly in, in family violence or with the you know there's different than not specialties but niches or or skills that you can develop that hone in on one particular area that yeah. are still within that broader sort of department of health and human services or, or whatever exactly. the different states have and because you can be, you know, a caseworker or you can be doing, you know, therapeutic work. You know, this you could be working just purely with children. You know, there's so many different areas within that. Yeah, I mean, that's like social work in general. But even once you get into that child, into that kind of child protection niche, it's yeah, it's so broad in itself. It's really it, it's given me a bit of renewed a bit of renewed faith. So, <laughs> oh, good, because I, I did my placement there, and that that never looked back. Um, yeah. But I think it was for me. I think it was the the lack of support. I think people had maybe forgotten that if you're coming straight out of uni into that role, the things that you're witnessing, which are the pointy end of, yeah, you know, families really struggling, mm -hmm. yeah. and that's all you see every day that was really heavy mm. um so i think for me you know, this is why i keep pushing supervision and better because i didn't know i didn't even know what burnout or vicarious trauma was we did everything yeah. about cumulative harm and the impact on the brain and trauma for the clients there was yeah. not any mention of burnout me either for, there was no mention of it. yeah and i didn't learn that till a few years later mm -hmm. so yeah so segueing into that you are working on a little bit of a product launch or project do you want to just give that a bit of a shout out <laughs> and tell us a little bit about that yeah i'd love to so um i um it's i've, I've launched a, a program it's called the practitioner passion project and so basically it's for social workers and child protection practitioners that are feeling stuck in their career maybe lost a bit of their mojo um and looking for that for you know, to reignite that passion. And so the program, it starts on the 6th of July. So um, it's intake based. So everyone starts on the same, at the same time. And you get, mod um, I've developed modules. And then alongside that, those modules, we um, will have a, kind of a group coaching session where we'll talk about and reflect on those modules. So it's kind of similar to what we were talking about, you know, just getting back to our why, um, thinking about, what gives us passion and energy and then um 
getting together with a group of people to talk about it and to reflect and to learn from each other and support each other. So yeah, it's a six, it's a six week, um, uh, program and I'm, I'm really excited about it because as you can tell, it's something that I'm really passionate about. And I think that we need to keep great social workers in the child protection field in particular. Um, I think a lot of people like similar to you, you know, you do your placement and you think, Oh no, this isn't for me. I need to get out. And we need really strong, um, really passionate social workers in the child protection field. Yeah. So is this open to what types of, uh, how far in their journey as practitioners? Oh, you can be um, any, in any um, length into your, into your um, career, but probably more for people and probably not new grads so much. It would be, you know, a few years out. So maybe, you know, you're really kind of, um, you're feeling a bit stuck. Um, yeah, looking looking to reignite that passion. So I'd hope early on in your career you've still got that. <laughs> Maybe um, down the track it will be about thinking about how workers can, you know, new grads can keep it. But yeah, yeah, this is kind of starting a few years down the track. <laughs> so I'll put I'll put links to those to that in the show notes. But if people right. want to get in touch or reach out, how can they contact you? And what else do you offer? Um, so I offer professional supervision at the moment. Um, and so you can get in touch with me via my website. So that's just lizandrewbrake.com. Um, I'm also quite active on Instagram. Um, so yeah, definitely get over and follow me on Instagram. So that's at lizandrewbrake. Um, and get on Instagram in general if you're looking to connect. There's so many really interesting social workers Australian social workers on Instagram. So I'd highly recommend it um, to get over and check out the hashtags for the different social work. Um, yeah. For the, all the different social work hashtags. Great. Thanks so much. So I'll put links to all of those um, in the show notes and good luck with the course. It sounds really exciting. So only, <laughs> Thank you. only a couple of weeks to go and yeah. <laughs> will you run it again? So if people kind of stumble across this episode in six months time, is yeah. that something they can, you'll run in different cohorts? Yeah, definitely. That's the plan. And this is the first one. So, you know, it'll be kind of refining it and um, seeing what works. Um, and ho yeah, so I definitely hope to keep on running it. Wonderful. Thanks so much. It's been lovely having you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources. And don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.